Welcome to Season 6 of the Food for Your Soul podcast, where we apply the Word of God to the hearts of men and women to stoke the fires of your delight in Christ. This season of the podcast is devoted to the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus teaches His people about life in the Kingdom of God. It's early. Sun is just coming up. You're still in bed. But you've been awakened by the noise and clamor of people in the street. Get up, look outside, and see all these crowds of people rushing down the street, all headed down the road out of town. You are promptly informed when you ask what's going on. It's that guy from Nazareth, the the miracle worker. He's just outside of town. And so you grab a few things, and you head out the door, and curious, uh, you join the crowd with no idea that you are about to witness firsthand with your own ears what would become the most famous sermon ever preached, no doubt the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. For thousands of years, the people of God, the people of Israel, waited for the promised king. And now the king has arrived, and he's setting up his kingdom. And in this address that he's giving up there on that hill this day, It's all about life in this kingdom, what righteousness looks like in this new kingdom. And one of the most important questions about life and righteousness in the kingdom is this. What is the role of the law? What is the role of the Old Testament law? Where does that fit into the kingdom? But before telling us about how the law fits into the kingdom, what the relationship is between the law and the kingdom, he's going to tell us what the relationship is between the law and the king. And that relationship is not one of abolition, but of fulfillment. Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but nor did he come to leave it untouched. The arrival of Jesus into the world changed everything. And there's a reason why we call the Old Testament old and the New Testament new. The the word testament is just a synonym for covenant. It means the same thing. It's just another word for covenant. So Old Testament and New Testament is just another way of saying Old Covenant and New Covenant. And that language comes right out of the Bible, right out of Jeremiah 31, 31. Look at verse 31. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a New Testament, New Covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, and it will not be like the covenant, the testament that I made with their forefathers. So the Old Covenant promises that someday there will be a New Testament. New Covenant. And the fact that one is old and the other is new implies that they're not going to be exactly the same. There's going to be some differences. Now, the word covenant, a covenant is just, just refers to God's arrangement with his people, the way he deals with his people. So what Jeremiah is saying here is after Messiah arrives, there will be a different arrangement between God and his people, a new one. Now, does that mean that absolutely every single thing will be different? Does it mean that Every part of the Old Covenant is going to be thrown out, including the law. So there's no more law? No. Look at verse 33. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. It's not going to be abolished. It's not going to be thrown out. Just the opposite. It will will be so central, it's going to be impressed right into our hearts and our minds. So the New Covenant, after Messiah comes, some things will be very different and some things will stay the same. So, which parts of the Old Testament are applicable to us today? Which parts of the Old Testament apply to your life today? All of them. The answer is all of them. 
Nothing in the Bible was written to you, but everything in the Bible was written for you. There is no part of the Bible written directly to us. There's no, there's no epistle to the church in Thornton. You know, there's no book of Coloradans. Or so. But Romans 15.4 says, Whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction so that we may have hope through endurance and through the encouragement that comes from the Scripture. So every passage in the whole Bible teaches something that you need to know. All of the Bible is still in force. All of it is applicable. And all of it was fulfilled by Jesus but not fulfilled in the same way. I found last week that the shadow type laws, there's two different kinds. There's what Jesus called the weightier matters of law and then the shadow laws. And the shadow kind of laws were fulfilled in such a way that they're no longer binding on us today. The principles taught by those shadow laws are still in very much in force, but the laws themselves do not regulate our behavior today like they did then. That's the outcome of the way that Jesus fulfilled the shadow laws the weightier matters of the law he also fulfilled. However, he fulfilled those in a different way, in such a way that they still are binding on us today. And so what I'd like to do is show you specifically how Jesus fulfilled each of the different parts of the law. And this is, this is an exciting... I don't know if it would be exciting to you. I love it. I was just so enriched by this this week. How did Jesus fulfill those laws? We'll start this morning with the civil law, the civil codes. That's... Government-type laws, tax codes and the penal system and business regulations and all that kind of stuff. How did Jesus fulfill that? And why is that part no longer binding on us? Why don't we obey those kinds of civil laws today? And our first impulse might be to say, oh, that's easy. That's not binding on us because we're not Israel. That was given to Israel and we're Gentiles. The problem with that explanation is those laws are no longer binding on Jews today either. If you look in your family tree and found out that you have some Jewish blood, you still send your taxes to Washington, not to the temple in Jerusalem. Even if you live in Israel. If you're a Jew living in Israel today and somebody murders your brother, according to the Old Testament civil codes, you must be the one to put that person to death. But according to the current day civil laws in Israel, that's not how it works. And so the Christian Jew living in Israel today should follow the laws of that secular government in Israel and not the Old Testament civil codes. Why? Why is that? It's because of the way in which Jesus fulfilled that part of the law. Jesus fulfilled the intended purpose of each part of the law. So let's think through, what was the intended purpose of the civil codes? What was God trying to achieve by giving those civil laws? The civil law was part of God setting aside a nation, the nation of Israel, as his own special people. And he had a plan. God had a plan for how he was going to bless every single human being on the entire planet. And that began with, that plan began with the physical offspring of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob. God changed Jacob's name to Israel. And so all the descendants of Jacob, descendants of Israel, are called Israelites. The nation of Israel, the Jews. And so, and, and so the special set-apart people of God at that time was an ethnic entity that came through a physical bloodline. That's what defined the people of God. The people of God in the Old Testament were a nation made up of believers and unbelievers. In fact, mostly unbelievers. 
There was a godly remnant of Jewish people who knew the Lord, but most of them did not know the Lord uh, in the Old Covenant. Most of God's people in the Old Covenant did not know the Lord. But even the non-believers who didn't know Him, even they were considered the people of God, the holy, set-apart nation, people of God, the covenant community. The people with whom God had a covenant. Today it's different. The new covenant people of God is the church. And we are defined not by physical descent or who your parents are, but by being born again. Whether you're actually born again. And so now 100% of the people of God, 100% of the covenant community are believers who actually know the Lord. If a person is a member of a local church and you've been in church all your life and all that, but you don't, you're not actually born again, you're not actually redeemed and saved, then that person is not a part of the people of God. He might look like he is and think he is and everyone else thinks he is, but he's not. So it's different now. Now why did God do it that way? Why did he have a people that was his people and they weren't all saved? Why didn't he have, in the Old Testament times, a church? Like in New Testament times, why did he make uh, an ethnic group defined by physical descent his people back then? Well, I'm actually not enough of a theologian to even scratch the surface of answering a question like that. No doubt God had multiple thousands of reasons, some revealed, some unrevealed. My guess is one of those reasons was that he, he wanted to put his grace on display in a special way. And in doing it that way, he could put his grace on display in a way that just made it abundantly obvious that these people were not getting this blessing because they deserved it. Many of them were God's enemies. And they still got the blessings. Ezekiel 36.22 This is what the Lord God says. It is not for your sake that I will act, O house of Israel, but for my holy name which you profaned. So he's talking about, I'm going to save you, but it's not for you. It's for me. By blessing a people who didn't even love him and making his special people through whom he would glorify his name and bring blessing to the whole world, making them an ethnic entity that didn't necessarily even love him, he was showing that his priority was his own glory and his own name. And that it wasn't them deserving it. And it just made it clear how God operates on the basis of lavish, undeserved grace. God's purpose for Israel was to make his name great among the nations in various different ways. Uh, one way God did it through Israel is by showing the world how incredibly patient he was with them during their times of rebellion. Another way he did it was by showing the world how severely he punished them when his patience finally ran out and showing that he's worthy to be feared and that he's not a God to be trifled with. And by far the greatest way that God glorified his name through Israel was to bring a Messiah through that nation who would be the perfect display of God's glory and who would bring salvation to the whole world. And while God was bringing about all these purposes through Israel, he wanted Israel to remain Israel. He wanted them to remain separate, distinct from the Gentiles. Gentile is just a word that means non-Jew. Anybody who's not a Jew is a Gentile. And he wanted them to remain separate, and so he set up this theocracy, this form of government in which they had their own civil government that was totally different from any Gentile government. And that kept them separate. That unique government had the purpose of making Israel distinct and different from the world and keeping them separate from the world. In fact, 
There are a whole bunch of laws in the Old Testament civil law that are known as the holiness codes. We call them the holiness codes. And they seem to have only one purpose. Just to make the Jews different. Just to make them different from everybody else. Separate from the Gentiles. Back then you could spot a Jew a mile away. Just by how he dressed and the way he looked, they were so different. They're dressed different, ate different, farmed differently. Everything about them was set apart and different right down to the very fabric of their clothes. Leviticus 19.19, you must not sow your fields with two different kinds of seed or put a garment on that was made with two different kinds of material. They just Everything was distinct. So a hundred times a day, these Jews, would, they would see their food, they'd see their clothes, they would see their livestock and their farms and their fields and constantly be reminded how different they were from all the people who weren't the people of God, all the Gentiles. So those holiness codes, those laws, were designed to put a wall of separation between the Jews and the Gentiles as a picture or an illustration of what holiness is all about. Holiness means to be set apart from evil and sin and the the evil world system. That's what holiness means. Wearing different clothes and eating different foods wasn't actual holiness. It was a picture of holiness. You understand that? God set up a nation that was set apart in external, physical ways as an illustration in order to serve as a picture of what real holiness, actual internal holiness, is like. Does that make sense? We need to know all that so we understand how Jesus fulfilled this particular part of the law. How did Jesus fulfill it? Ephesians 2.11 Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two, Gentiles and Jews, one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. So it says he abolished the law. He abolished in his flesh the law with his command. Does that mean that Jesus made it so that now it's okay to disobey God? No. Does it mean that Jesus made it so there are no rules anymore, there's nothing left to obey? No. Does it mean that we're no longer bound to follow the weightier matters of the law, like justice and mercy and faithfulness and all that? No, it doesn't mean any of that. It simply means that Jesus eliminated that portion of the law that was designed to function as a dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles. He destroyed that. He's talking about the civil codes, the civil law. And he destroyed that not by setting it aside, not by overturning it, but by fulfilling the purpose of it. True holiness in the Messiah's kingdom was going to be real, actual, moral separation from the world. We're in the world, but not of the world. We would be among them physically, intermixed with them geographically, but spiritually separated from them. Paul explains all that in 2 Corinthians 6. And when he explains that, he uses quotations from the Old Testament that had to do with the civil law and applies it to actual 
moral separation. Second uh, Corinthians six fourteen. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of God, the living God. Verse 17, Therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. Then look at verse 1 of chapter 7. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates the body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. So now the picture, the purpose of those Old Testament civil laws has been realized, and so we don't need the picture anymore. We don't need the illustration anymore. So today, we don't stone someone to death if he curses his parents. We don't require the closest relative to marry the widow of somebody who dies, like was required in the Old Testament civil law. We don't require those things. Why? Because those portions of the Bible are cut out, they're abolished? No. The principles taught by those passages are just as true today as ever, but the commands themselves had a temporary purpose of pointing to a reality that has now been in place, that has now come to be, and therefore we don't need the pictures and the pointing anymore. That's how Jesus fulfilled the civil law. Thank you for listening. We pray that in this series, your life will be transformed by the soaring ethics, deep insights, and glorious promises of the Sermon on the Mount. We are crowdfunded ministry, so if you would like this podcast to continue, please consider supporting us with a tax-deductible gift. Just go to treasuringgod.com and click on Give. Until next time, rejoice in the Lord always and set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God.